0: this morning if you haven't been with us for a while or if this is your first time with us uh, we've been in a series called highlighting the home and just taking some time uh, to focus from the scriptures on uh, some some principles that will help us within our homes become a a greater uh, community of faith my dad uh, I know most of you would never have met my dad he he was uh, he 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 spent much of his life uh, in construction building roads, bridges, and, and tunnels. It's kind of what he did. In fact, it was very, very common for us to be driving down a road, and my mom uh, would say, so, Brian, did you know that your dad helped build this bridge? Or did you know your dad helped lay this? Uh, my dad was a part of laying down the, uh, the, the road of Interstate 94, that is today one of the, one of the busiest east-west interstates uh, in the nation. Uh, he was a part of the Illinois tollway system, which which was built to go around the city of Chicago And every time we were on the mile-long bridge My mom would say something and I think every time our family traveled on the mile-long bridge I would say hey, did you know did you know your grandpa helped build this? It was just one of those things that you enjoy talking about But something interesting before I left and i've, I've been gone for five years before I left I would be sometimes in in my dad dri- driving with my dad and we'd go under a bridge and he'd say, you know, I built this one, but that bridge was being torn down Sometimes because they were expanding to six or eight lanes and so they needed to make the bridges wider But there were a few times where he he could look as we were driving by and he said, yeah, that that bridge is in great disrepair I mean, we probably all have seen seen movies where a bridge collapses and of course those are all staged But there are real life bridge collapses where real people sometimes get tragically hurt or, or even killed, because those bridges collapsed without warning. But to say without warning is not really true, because for people who know what to look for and know where to look, they can often see that there was signs of stress and wear on those bridges that did collapse. And you know our, our relationships. Are often the same way Sometimes we'll hear about a marriage collapsing Or about a family that splinters And it takes, takes us by complete surprise but, but looking closely There's often, not always, but often signs of stress Injury and pain That are visible To those who look closely and know where to look you see, our relationships, they, they provide one of two things, either a magnifying glass or a mirror. Actually, they, they provide both. Because the closer we get to someone whether it's a spouse or whether it's our child or a parent Whether it's a friend or a family member the closer we get to someone the the inevitable is the easier It will be to see their faults and failures almost like we're holding a magnifying glass up and we can now because the Relationship has grown closer. We can now see greater faults and failures but also We can see our own as those relationships grow our own faults and failures as the mirror of sorts is held up for us to be able to see Hey, when you're taking care or when you have that argument, did you see your temper get out of control? When you had that disagreement, did you see how your pride rose up because you wanted your way? Did you see how you defended yourself and your position at all costs? But sometimes we're so focused on the magnifying glass that draws our attention to the faults and failures of others That we ignore or don't even pay attention to the mirror that's trying to display our own faults Tim keller and i've referenced this book a few times over this series the meaning of marriage in his book He writes this. He said marriage doesn't create your weaknesses. Marriage reveals your weaknesses He goes on to say basically that marriage, you know, doesn't bring you as it doesn't as much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as much as it brings you into confrontation with yourself. Because what relationships as they grow closer, what they will do is they will force you to open unlocked doors and turn lights on in rooms that you have tried to keep hidden from everyone. I know that we're all very careful uh, to try to be transparent with one another. But I think if we were to be honest, we all have something that we've never shared with someone. Because we know that if we open ourselves up completely, there's this, this fear, or this concern that if I tell you who I really am, you, you won't want me anymore. You will reject me. But relationships as they grow closer force us to turn on lights and unlock doors that we've tried to keep hidden and closed. What they do is they expose it sometimes to the people we care about most. Because while there's no one in this room that I love more than my family, and there's no one in this room that has experienced my love more than my family, the truth is there's no one in this room that has seen and experienced and witnessed my sinful nature more than my family. More than anyone in this room, my wife has seen my pride, my arrogance, my anger, my temper. No one has seen that as much as the one that I love the most. My kids have heard me yell about just careless mistakes that they've made accidents that they have done and I have lost my temper And I have been unkind to them and it's so embarrassing Those are things that you want to lock behind doors But it's what happens when you draw near someone in relationship. Yes, you see their faults But you also see yours and then the question is which one do I take care of? But the beauty is that we saw last week how we take care of these faults often In Ephesians chapter 5, we looked at last week how the covenant sacrificial love of Jesus changes us, sanctifies, cleanses, washes, cleans, creates us holy and without blemish. That's what the sacrifice, that's what the sacrificing covenant love of Jesus does for us. But here's the cool thing about Jesus. As we draw closer and closer to him and pull out that magnifying glass and that mirror, a growing relationship with Jesus does not reveal to him any new flaws or failures or weaknesses in us. Here's the good thing about our Savior. He already knew 100% of who we were when he chose to love us. But it gets even better. Because a growing relationship with Jesus doesn't reveal to us any new flaws, failures, or weaknesses in Him, because He is completely perfect and always has been. We can pull out our magnifying glass, and as we try to draw closer and closer to Jesus, we're not going to see anything wrong with him because he's perfect. But as we draw closer and closer to him, we're not going to show him in a mirror any of our flaws and failures that he already didn't know and yet still chose to love us with all that he is. I love that. So we, I think we kind of get that this transforming love of Jesus comes to us and is, is meant to flow through us. And so we ask them, well, what's, what's the problem that we have often in our relationships? And, and if you'll let me make this statement without you going crazy and, and, and let your mind drift a, a, a certain direction, let, let, me, let me finish it. I think one of the great problems we encounter is that we never stay married to the same person long enough to see that change really take place. And when I say that, I'm not talking about divorce and death. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Keller made this statement. My wife has been married to five different men, but they've all been me. She married me, and after marriage, I changed into another man. Then we had kids, and I changed into another man. Then I became a pastor and I changed into another man And as I have grown older, I have changed into another man My wife has had to be married to five different men and they've all been me Oh, I I remember I remember coming across that and then the the truth hit me like a, a ton of bricks because immediately I went back to To my wife. So so I fell in love with my wife when we were in high school And when we got married, I was 21 and she was 20 when we got married. So much has changed since high school. So much has changed since that that day we stood at a wedding altar and we pledged our our love to one another. We had no idea what awaited us. We had no idea that three children were awaiting our future. Or or a life of pastoral ministry. Or one day picking up our roots and moving completely uh, 12 hours away from our family. We had no idea we would face the tragic loss of Jamie's dad. We had no idea what it would be like raising three teenagers. But see, at marriage, we made this covenant love that said, it doesn't matter who you are or who you will become or what we will go through. This covenant love of marriage says, I will be with you and I will pledge my love to you no matter what and see see here's the thing when i look at a flawed woman loving a flawed man with all of her heart All it does is it points right back to Jesus because I see a flawed woman loving a flawed man and and I'm amazed at how she can change me. And yet here we have a very unflawed Savior who loves very flawed people and I'm just overwhelmed. I get it if one flawed person loves another flawed person, but when a a perfect person loves a very sinful person, that is should move our hearts to be overwhelmed with the love we have of Jesus. And think about it. Oftentimes in relationships, we don't love the people. We love the image that the people give us. We present an image of who we want you to to love who we who we want you to believe we we really are because again if we open ourselves up completely well man you'll never want me for who i am and so i'm only going to present to you who i want you to think i am but we don't get to do that with jesus Like he knows, he sees our hearts. He knows everything that we are. And he looks at us. And when we say, but I don't want you to see this part. He says, I already see it. And here's the thing. My love is not dependent on your goodness. My love is dependent on my goodness. What a savior. So as we draw closer to Jesus, we see that we are so lost, so flawed. We are. that he had to die for us. But as we draw, we see we are so loved and so valued that he was glad to die for us. What a Savior. What a Savior. And this truth leads me into what, I, what I've been waiting to get to with this, with this series of relationships it was a number of years ago when we were working. Uh, 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 I was reading that meaning of marriage book, and, and I came across uh, just something—a truth that really, really transformed my life. It was—it's a—it's a—it's a theme that Keller used, but he got it from C.S. Lewis, and and, it, and it's called the dance of the Trinity. The dance of the Trinity. And the dance of the Trinity is is referring to the Godhead. And the love that is the perfect love that is experienced within the Godhead. And I know I just used a couple words that maybe some of you aren't familiar with. When I say Godhead, I'm talking about the Trinity. And when I talk about the Trinity, I mean God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we don't don't worship three different gods. As Christians, what we believe is that we have one God that is in three unique natures, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but one God. And the dance of the Trinity is how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love one another with perfect love and experience the love of one another with perfect love. We find the dance in philippians chapter 2 and understanding this has helped me in my own marriage and my own relationships so much so that's what i want to share with you this 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 afternoon philippia this morning this philippians chapter 2 as we talk about the dance of the trinity so philippians chapter 2 verse number 5 is where we're going to begin Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5. It's a familiar verse, and the King James, maybe many of you would know it, is let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 2, 5. So let me keep reading here. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So I'm going to pause right here and just make sure we, we understand. So The Apostle Paul is telling believers, have the mind of Christ And the mind of Christ is this, although he is one of the Trinity, one of the Godhead, he did not count keeping the equality that he had as God as something he had to hold on to, he actually let it go. What does that mean? Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of of men. So so Jesus emptied himself. and Some people may say, what does that mean? It doesn't mean he stopped being God. Remember when Jesus came and he walked on this earth, he did miracles only God could do, but he also received worship that only God should receive, and he also forgave sins, and only God can do that. So he didn't empty himself of his godness. He emptied himself of the glory that was his in heaven. Remember um, the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah and three of Three of Jesus' disciples saw Jesus glowing Well, that was that was his glory emanating That's what he emptied when he came To earth and he didn't come as a king or he doesn't come as royalty he came as a servant Look at verse 8 And being found in human form He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death On the cross so can I ask? Is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? Does God have to obey someone? Like, who, what authority is greater than God? But it says Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so, so here's Jesus. He, he empties. He doesn't have to hold on to the equality of God. He lets it go. He empties himself of his glory. He comes to the earth as in the form of a human servant, and he is obedient to the point of death on a cross. Why? 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 Well, Jesus answers this himself. So I'm going to take you through a little through the gospel of John I'm not going to ask you to turn there. I'll have the verses behind me But in john chapter 6, jesus makes this statement For I come for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me Okay, so we know jesus when he left heaven emptied himself came here as a form of a servant He wasn't doing his own will. He was doing the will of him who sent me question who sent him Okay john three sixteen. for god the father so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world so we know it's God that sent his son into the world he didn't send him though to condemn the world but he sent him that the world might be saved through him so God the father sent God the son and so when it says Jesus Christ obeyed it's Jesus is obeying his father and coming to this earth to be born of a woman to be a servant But why did Jesus empty his glory? Why did he set his glory aside? Well, John 17, four actually tells us. I glorified you on earth. He's talking to the father in John 17. If you have a red letter Bible, John 17 is all red letter because it's just Jesus talking. I have glorified you on earth Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do remember jesus said I came to do the will of one who sent me Now he's saying by doing the will of the one who sent me I have glorified you So jesus Emptied his glory In order to come so that his father could be glorified he says and then verse 5 and now father Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed Jesus is praying. He said, I've I've glorified you by being obedient to you. Father, I cannot wait to be back in your presence where you will give me back the glory that I've had from the beginning of the world. So we see Jesus emptied his glory to, to make sure his father was glorified. That's not all. Because as we go through the end of John chapter 17, Jesus is going to pray for his disciples, and then he's going to turn his prayer, not just for his 12 disciples or 11, because Judas was gone, but for everyone who, was gonna, who, who would believe in the word of the disciples, and that's what we have in the New Testament, the words of the apostles. And this is what he says in John 17. It's a little bit long, but let me read these five verses. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, meaning oh, these disciples, But also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in me And I in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one Remember jesus said that I give the authority for you to become sons of god if you believe in me verse 23 I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I'm sorry to lay this long of a foundation, but here's the thing Jesus obeyed the Father in order to glorify the father because he loved the father so much. But also he loved the father so much he wanted others to experience the love of the father. And the only way that we could experience the love of the father was for him to empty his own glory Come to earth and be a servant that was obedient to the point of death But he did it all to glorify his father and he did it all so that we could experience the love He knows from the father that is perfect and he wants us to have it too So so the first step in what we would call the dance of the Trinity is that Jesus humbled himself, emptied himself of glory so that the Father could be glorified. Let's go back to Philippians 2 now. I'm going to reread the verses we've already read. Chapter chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. <laughs> but Jesus humbles himself Empties himself of glory so the father could be glorified And as the father receives that perfect love of jesus where he didn't hold on to the equality He had he let it go But as the father receives that love he says oh, I will take that love and I will love you with a perfect love So you were humbled by you were humbling yourself Let me exalt you to the greatest place there could be and above your name is no name And you who said you would be servant you will be seen And called and worshiped as Lord of all. But look at the last phrase of the verse. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus loves the Father so much that he empties himself. So the Father raises Jesus up because he wants to do it. And Jesus, you could raise me up, but I'm going to do it for your glory, Father. And it is just this beautiful dance that goes back and forth between the Father and the Son who want to extend perfect love to one another. It's not just the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit, too. Because Jesus, as he gathers his disciples in John 16, he's about to leave them. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Wait, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, here with me. It's to my advantage that Jesus, the Son of God, leaves. He says, for if I do not go away, the helper, and that's the term for the Holy Spirit. Some of your Bibles may say comforter. The helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And we see that in John 15, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he will bear witness. Wait a second. Wait Wait a second. Jesus has to leave in order for the Spirit to come. But when the Spirit comes, what does the Spirit do? He talks about Jesus. How cool is that? In John 14, we see the same thing. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father We'll send in my name. So there's the Trinity right there. The Holy Spirit sent by the Father in the name of the Son. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit's going to teach? What's he going to teach? Everything I've said. Man, do you see this, this beautiful love between the three parts of the Godhead as they love one another and continue to try to lift one another the the way that uh, I think, I forgot who exactly it was that that shared this with me once, but man, it stuck with me that the way the Holy Spirit works in our life is like the Washington Monument at night. Man, the Washington Monument at night is is absolutely gorgeous. It's lit up. But you know why you can see it at night? Because of the lights. But do you go to the spot where the Washington Monument is to see the lights? No, you go to see the monument. What the Holy Spirit does in our lives is the Holy Spirit is a spotlight on the person of Jesus saying, look how beautiful he is. Yes, the Father is the one who sent me and the, the Son is beside you and the Spirit is inside of me, but all of us work in tandem because we want the Father to be glorified. We want the Ton to be exalted and the holy spirit inside us continues to point us to the goodness of the son who wants to glorify his father that is, that is just, that's just just so cool to me I, I love that and this beautiful dance is exactly what our marriages are supposed to be it's a pattern of relationships because as, we, as we, saw, we saw in Ephesians 5 these last couple of weeks where we've been camped out, what we haven't done is we haven't gone to the very beginning of the portion of Scripture. We started in verse 25 as we've talked about husbands, but let me take you to the very beginning of Ephesians 5 that talk about relationships in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because we know what Jesus did in humbling himself, we submit ourselves to one another. And then watch verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, it really doesn't matter anymore, I think, whether you're in church settings or out-of-church settings. When we start talking about submission, nobody likes that. But we see very clearly here that there is a submission, that Christ is the head of the church, the church submits to Christ, and the wife submits to the husband as, as to the Lord. And, and I want to take you to one other passage where the same author is saying basically the same thing but he adds one element 1 Corinthians 11 Paul's kind of still talking about marriage here he says I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ the head of wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God well wait a second is Jesus God I mean, Jesus is God so, the head of Christ is God? What does, that, does that mean then the Father is more valuable than the Son? That the Son doesn't measure up to who the Father is, and so the, 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 the Father is more worthy than the Son? No. If we go back to what Philippians 2 said when Jesus humbled himself, became obedient, and emptied himself of his glory, And went to the cross, here's what we have, by submitting to the Father, Jesus displays the glory of God. He fulfills the word of God, and he provides a way to God through the forgiveness of sin, and he allowed others to experience the glory of God and the love of God. Jesus is god and jesus is equal with the father But jesus humbled himself to the authority of the father in order for all of these things behind me to take place Which includes the glory of the father and our experience with the father Just carry that back to marriage for just a moment Is the husband the head of the wife because the husband is more important more valuable stronger well i mean genesis tells us that he made the male and female in his image see where submission comes in in a marriage is that we get to play out in our marriages the beauty of the love of the trinity how the son who had equality with the father, but said, I will let it go in order for this plan of salvation to take place because father, it will glorify you. Is in our marriages, what we have an opportunity to do is, hey, husbands, it starts off by saying, submitting ourselves one to another, right? It's not about having a thumb over somebody because the head of the husband is Christ. But when it says the wife submits to the husband, it's not because that wife is not more as valuable. It's not because she's not important. It's because the wife is being called to live out that, that portion of the Trinity that the Son lived out in representing the Father to the world to say, glorify my Father. It was a perfect love. And the problem is, because we live in an imperfect world and our hearts are filled with sin, when we live out this submission, sometimes it goes haywire. You have men who have dominant control and you have women who want to rise up against it. But the beauty of marriage that reflects 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians chapter 5 is when there is a man who is submitted to the Christ and because of his love for Christ, that woman says, I will submit to you because as we both play out the role of submission, our children will get to witness the glory that God is In the world around us, we'll get to see two people who are of equal value in God's eyes. One, joyfully submitting in order to exalt the other. But but here's the thing then, hey, as they joyfully submit, there ought to be an exaltation because of the submission. And when there's that exaltation, the submission comes back again. And as that submission comes, the exaltation. And now all of a sudden in our marriages, we are playing out the beautiful dance that we see in Philippians 2 between the father and the son. That's what our relationships are called to live out of the glory of God. So we're gonna close today not with a somber time of Lord's Supper, but with a joyful time as we celebrate the dance of the Trinity that resulted in our salvation and the glory.